0: to the italian wine podcast i'm cynthia chaplin and this is voices every wednesday i will be sharing conversations with international wine industry professionals discussing issues in diversity equity and inclusion through their personal experiences working in the field of wine if you enjoy the show please subscribe and rate our show wherever you get your pods hello and welcome to voices this is cynthia chaplin and today i'm so happy to welcome jordan salcito She's the founder of Drink Ramona, which she started in 2016. And Jordan began her career in New York, where she still lives, as a restaurant hostess before becoming a prep cook and a sommelier and a manager, and eventually the wine and beverage director at David Chang's Momofuku, where her wine programs were repeatedly selected as semi-finalists for Outstanding Wine Program by the James Beard Foundation, World of Fine Wines, named them the most creative in the world and they propelled her into Wine Enthusiast's Top 100 Restaurants. So welcome to the show. Thank you so much, Jordan, for coming on today. Cynthia, thank you so much for having me. I'm so happy to uh, be here having this conversation together. Great. Well, I am so excited to talk about Ramona. It is described as, quote, the best of Italian spritz culture in a can. So you've got to tell us about this drink, and how did you come up with this idea? Okay, yes. So Ramona... Ramona's
1: named after my my sister's childhood alter ego. When she was five, she had this alter ego scapegoat. And anytime she did anything she wasn't supposed to, she blamed it on Ramona. <laughs> and it, it felt like that, that needed to be the name for es- essentially what Ramona, what what I my my vision for and goal with Ramona, starting in those very early days, was to create something that was portable that also of adhered to this value system that I came to expect in anything that I personally consumed because um, working as a sommelier, then on um, every fall I would go and I would work harvest. It started in Burgundy for the first 10 years I would work in Burgundy. And then sometimes I would go to other places after that, Montalcino or um, California or Patagonia. And it was just this amazing education in understanding decisions and decisions that don't ever end up on a website or uh, decisions that are very sort of secretive and not in a bad way, oftentimes in a very good way. But there was this through line in all of these really great wines of the world, whether they were very expensive and very fancy or whether they were very humble, uh, but that Essentially, the people making the wines were choosing to not spray chemicals in the vineyards and not add weird stuff in the winery. And there's so many things that get added to vineyards. I would say a lot of times, in particular in the United States, and that that and of course there are exceptions to this. Um, but Italy has this four thousand year culture of organic viticulture. And the United States really didn't have a wine culture until pretty much after World War II, because we weren't even able to grow vinifera grapes here in the United States until after phylloxera ravaged Europe. And we, it was something, of course, America was responsible for, and then thankfully able to, able to uh, understand and help solve. But that wasn't until really the Effectively, the beginning of the 1900s or the 20th century, and then after that.
0: And then, of course, prohibition as well. So what was your philosophy with the pivot towards a premium cocktail, you know, pre-mixed in a can? It's a big change.
1: Yes, I a big change. I. I think I felt as though there were there was a big gaping hole, and that there were so many instances where I I personally would have loved something refreshing and low alcohol and and delicious, and that it simply wasn't available. And there were a few key moments that, that I recall. I remember eating. Or there's a, a clam. It's a restaurant called the Clam Bar, and it uh, is by the beach on Long Island, and. My husband and I would always get, you know, a lobster roll in the summer and then he would have a beer and I was never somebody who, I've never found beer very delicious or refreshing. And so I would just have sparkling water because it's like, well, I don't want a glass of cheap rosé. I know what goes into that and I just don't have an interest in, you know, ending up with a headache later on. And, And so I just felt like, why is there, why is nobody... Why is nobody actually making a beverage that, that I know today's consumer wants? I'm, I'm certainly not the only person who would like something that's low alcohol and refreshing and delicious, but also not full of weird chemicals or pesticides or, yeah, that I can sort of get on board with philosophically that also tastes good. Because I think that was the, another thing where, and I remember even in like the early days of Ramona and people who who are now big fans of of, of what we're doing would say to me something like, well, "You know, it it tastes much better than it has to. Uh, it doesn't actually have to taste very good, you know. The package is fun, and and that's what people care about. Um, but I I guess I just always felt like, why wouldn't we want to try and check every box? <laughs> and so,
0: yeah, that's a little tragic. I, I I think that it should definitely taste good, absolutely. So. <laughs> That's that's a point. Packaging is one thing. Uh, but yeah, the taste is what's going to make me come back. Yes,
1: exactly. And, and I think, you know,
0: taste and farming practices
1: are so linked. And it's, it just, it was sort of a no brainer to me. Like, why would we not work with ingredients that don't require a whole bunch of manipulation? And why would we not just work with Organ- so we worked with organic grapes from day one, and um, organic citrus fruit, and that just seemed like such a no brainer to me. Although, though know, we we very quickly, so we made our first batch in the United States. We shipped over um, organic wine. It was a Sicilian Zabibo grape based wine. Oh, excellent choice. <laughs> because it's bright and it's zingy and it's, it, especially if it's harvested before it's overly ripe. So a lot of times Zabibo can end up in dessert wine, but if it's harvested um, before it gets overly ripe, it's so delicious and aromatic and, but not too aromatic and just delightful. And so after a bunch of Trial and error. We we end up moving forward with Zabibo as the base, and um, remember we shipped it over to the United States, and we got it up to this facility in upstate New York, and then the day of canning. And at this point, I had used probably all of my savings. In fact, certainly definitively all of my savings to get to this day and to get the logistics lined up in the mobile canner and all that. And that was the day that I learned about Belkerin. And because I was told I had to use it, I was given a choice and told I could either use.
0: You're going to have to explain to our listeners what it is because not everyone will know
1: people don't know because nobody
0: has to know.
1: There is—I I, I need to do a little bit more digging on who is actually behind it. But Velcarin is dye, uh, anyway. It's a—it's a chemical. It is a neurotoxin chemical that must be administered with a hazmat suit. And back in 1998, the makers of Velcarin were able to sort of snake it through the FDA, saying that well, it didn't have to be disclosed on labels because it was not an additive or an ingredient it was a assistance it it helped assist uh, to get rid of of bad bacteria which is just semantics it's a neurotoxin that gets added secretly to a lot of things in the United States. So I, I heard. Uh, well, I won't go into what I won't name the company, but there was a juice
0: company that had an E. coli scare in the uh, early '90s. That's how I know the story. Absolutely terrifying. I, I won't name the company, but as soon as you said Velcro, and I thought, oh, yep, I know that story exactly. It was a big, terrifying issue at the time.
1: Oh, and and it remains something that nobody has to talk about. And then the more terrifying thing for me or just, I guess, the thing that just sort of makes me raise eyebrows and just want want so much more transparency on the part of the U.S. government is that it now, it's now cheaper. In fact, it's it's actually impossible because when I learned about Velcro and I immediately started looking for ways to produce Ramona without it. And the only way that we have been able to do that was to move production to Italy. Um, and in Italy, so many things are, 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 more aligned with our value system. So we're able to work with these delicious, organically farmed Sicilian uh, blood oranges for our blood orange flavor and lemons for our lemon flavor. And it just is is easier in so many ways because everything... The quality of ingredients that we're able to work with in Italy is just so much higher and it's less expensive because in, in the United States, there are so many fees and it's just so very challenging to grow things organically. So there are a handful of wineries that are doing an amazing job. Rajat Par at Felon Farms is one example of that. And of course there are others, but, but it's really hard and it's really rare and it's so much easier to just... Get the 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 benefit, or the financial benefits of Roundup and spray the ground with Roundup to kill off any any weeds. A friend of mine, Diana Snowden, says who makes wine in both Burgundy and and now in California at her family's winery. She was explaining to me that it's um, it took so many years to get her family on board with organic farming because it's. 3, I believe it's $300 if you just want to buy enough Roundup to spray the whole vineyard area versus 28,000 if you want to grow it organically and um and be certified. So there's such a cost associated that that it's almost it's 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 such a high mountain to climb whereas in Italy and in other countries, but certainly Italy, um I would say at least Italy's always at the forefront. Italy bound, or banned Roundup in pre-harvest farming back in 2016 and was, I believe, the first country in the EU to do that. And others have followed. France came on board in 2020, four years later. And I think Luxembourg was trying to outlaw Roundup entirely. But then the lobby, I guess, was strong enough that they decided not to do that.
0: But anyway... It is so difficult. It, it really is trying to, you know, go down this rabbit hole of of why why do we punish the, the farmers who are trying to go organic and, and make the toxic chemical yes. people wealthy? I mean, this, I don't want to go down this road in this podcast, but it is a question that I've had in my mind for years. In the U.S., it seems to be upside down, but that's just my opinion. I'm, I'm so happy about everything you said in terms of Italian farming. I mean, Italy's always been a relatively... Um, poor country economically compared to other European countries and certainly the U.S. So they didn't always have the money for the expensive chemicals and, you know, necessity being the mother of invention, they were doing organic far before everybody else. So, um, I'm really excited about the fact that you chose Italy for your base wine and chose Italy for its fruit, and of course your surname is Salcito, so I'm guessing there's Italian heritage in there. So I want to talk to you a minute about this. You found a you found a gaping hole in the market. Your husband was having a beer, and and you didn't have anything to drink. So I'm assuming from your time in Italy when you were younger and your Italian surname that you knew about. The spritz culture. Let's talk about that for a bit, because again, not all of our listeners will know how important spritz is in Italy. Ah, yes.
1: Okay. And it's such a fun backstory too. All right. So I remember my first spritz. My first spritz was an Aperol spritz and I had it during the fall of 2008. And my husband and I had gone to help a friend who had just recently purchased a winery in Montalcino, but he was a bridge player and he was in some tournament. So he said, hey, I don't actually know about making wine anyway,
0: but you guys do. Do you mind just going over to help make this wine? You took one for the team and went to Montalcino. Very sad.
1: (laughs) Well, Montalcino is so spectacularly beautiful and it's so wild and rugged compared to Burgundy. I mean, I think Burgundy is so manicured and it's, you know, it's broke both places for me are, are magic in this very, very powerful way. And they're so, so, so different. So there was this, and also our experiences there. So when we were Uh, harvesting in Burgundy, we were part of a larger program and everything was very organized. Whereas when we were uh, in Montalcino that particular year, it was a little chaotic because there was no leadership. We were sort of the leadership, but we also were not at all and very much didn't know what we were doing. And we're sort of like, okay, I think we should have a sorting table because that's what we do in Burgundy. And we, we knew enough to to make sure that, you know, the, that, that we weren't going to mess it up too royally. But but in essence, I remember there was this one particular day and it was very rainy and we didn't have a winery, even there was like a little a little building where the vats of wine um were stored as they were aging. But it it wasn't like there was a, a winery for sorting the grapes. So we had this tarp and it kept blowing down in the wind. Anyway, long story short, the every afternoon after we would we would sort the grapes and we would clean everything up, we would all go to the piazza, which is such a special piazza, and we would have we'd have a cappuccino in the morning and then we would have a spritz in the afternoon. And it it was just this like bright, like literally very bright because that is the color of spritzes, but also this very bright, happy moment in the day, which was really like, I think it it was almost like being a tourist in Burgundy versus like actually doing a lot of work in Montalcino up to that point. And so I, I started to associate spritzes with this sort of moment of lightness, this moment of happiness, this moment of, yeah, just joy in the middle of the afternoon. And then started doing a deeper dive into the history of spritzes, which, which is sort of amazing. So I mean, you could really argue that spritzes history goes all the way back to ancient Rome and ancient Greece because it was very uncouth to drink straight wine on its own. People would mix it with berries and flowers and water. But then the, the word spritz uh, can be traced back to the late 1800s when uh, the Habsburg Empire occupied northern Italy and uh, the the Os- the Austrians didn't like to drink full strength Italian wine so they would add a spray of water or a spritz of water and that was that's believed to be the origin of the word.
0: I did not know that. That's fascinating. Mm-hmm.
1: And then it evolved again in 1904. The there was a birth of an art movement called the Italian Futurist art movement and that as I understand it uh, was effectively a bunch of artists in Italy who were sort of who were very fed up with their entire identity being tied to the past, to the Renaissance, to the Roman Empire and they were they were sort of uh, they were they were annoyed understandably and they were like, no no no, we do things differently they wanted to celebrate. Everything new, and the future, and violence, and machinery, and war, and bright colors. And and out of that art movement grew this... A legitimate cocktail movement called the Italian Futurist Cocktail Movement. And uh, cocktails were renamed Poly Bibites, and, and it was very experiential. But that was the birth of Select and Aperol and Campari and these other brightly colored, very different looking, very different tasting beverages. Um, and apparently... As I've read up on a little bit, you, you didn't just order a spritz, you ordered whatever polybibite you had ordered, and then it would be served with garnishes like communion wafers stuffed with anchovies. So it was really like, how do we take all this old stuff and turn it on its head? Or you would be, uh, one of the other garnishes would be like a piece of sandpaper that you would touch and pet. So it was very experiential. But
0: anyway, completely out of the box, flying in the face of convention. For anybody who has not seen, italian advertising posters from that period they are incredible so i highly recommend that yeah they're amazing are you enjoying this podcast don't forget to visit our youtube channel mama jumbo shrimp for fascinating videos covering stevie kim and her travels across italy and beyond meeting winemakers eating local foods and taking in the scenery I wanted to ask you about sort of the other things going on with Ramona and and this whole spritz idea because your it's not only your fruit and your wine that's all organic but you're vegan and gluten free and low in sulfites and you've got recyclable packaging and I just want to talk about the principles behind this for you. What's it's not it's not cheap to be all of these things. I think people think it's quite easy and it, it really is not. And recyclable packaging can be quite expensive as well. So these these principles are obviously quite important to you. I just wanted to touch on that for a bit. What what took you down that road? Thank you so much. For me, I've always thought of
1: Ramona as coming out of this fine wine value system. And Ramona is in no way a fine wine. It is not reserved for fancy moments or linen tablecloths, although it's certainly welcome there. And this is, I I think I got this understanding of this concept of high-low through David Chang, my former boss, who would always talk about high-low and this sort of right high integrity, but for any kind of moment, whether it's a fancy moment or a casual one. And for me, as a Person who is inhabiting this world, and as a parent of two children who will be part of the future generations, it just—I—I don't—I have no interest in contributing to. I, I guess how do I say this differently? I think as a business owner, I feel like I'm I'm in a very fortunate position where I'm able to make decisions that that feel like the responsible thing to do uh, as a business owner. So yes, we could use Velkerin, which would be cheaper and easier to do. However, why would I want to continue? That's not aligned with a fine wine value system of integrity and really forward thinking. Like I'm thinking of right now, there's a winemaker, Jean-Louis Chauve, and his family has been making wine in the Rhone Valley since 1461. And a few years ago, he completed a project of, along with two or three of his colleagues, rebuilding these walls that were built by the Romans. And they're, they're these terraced walls and these effectively up a mountainside in San Josef, right across from Ermitage. And these are, and then replanted the vines. And these are vines that are not going to really make any, uh, these, were, these were not vines that he planted for himself. These are vines that he planted for his children and his children's children. And that long-term thinking and this sort of respect for resources is a no-brainer, I think, especially as every, as so many headlines coming out of the news are about how, how we, as a human race, need to get on board quickly with sustainable solutions to our lives
0: yeah that is that is such a good point it It really, really is, and especially you know being mother, having children, uh, I think it makes us more focused on looking to the future and and making the world a healthier and safer place to live in, which you're definitely doing um it, it's interesting because i I love the idea that your fine wine background gave you sort of a, a very high standard for your canned spritz background. It's, it's not something that you would normally think of as being aligned. Um, and I, I like the fact that you have really put those things onto the same page. It's unusual. But you, you brought up David Chang and, and Momofuku, and I just want to go a little bit backwards in your history about that because a um, huge part of your life, you, know, you worked at some of the top restaurants in New York, Co., 11 Madison Park, and Crown, and obviously with David at Momofuku, and you studied at the court of Master Sommelier, Um, and I know your your experience in the court wasn't all that hugely positive, even though you passed the blind tasting portion of the exam on your first try. Um, You've described your experience there as sort of full of weird roadblocks and the service exam as a gut punch. And I just wanted to ask you, in your opinion, you know, in light of all the scandal that has come out recently about misogyny and um, injustice at the court. How did you put your experience into context for yourself? How would you advise a young woman considering becoming a student at the court now? Yes, okay. And I,
1: I do think, I mean, overall, I feel like, so I was I was able to pass, I, before, while simultaneously not uh, passing the service exam and my feedback on that, it was, so there are three tables and I had passed two of the three and the third one was the table in which I answered every question correctly. And uh, I remember my feedback was was that um, I didn't seem like myself to this particular table of people who have never seen me work in a restaurant, who also don't work in restaurants themselves, and so it took a little while to to have perspective on that. But at the, in the moment,
0: and presumably they didn't know you. How would they know what yourself? Was? Well, yeah,
1: I think. I mean, I think that's that's indicative of sort of some of the unfortunate behavior that was going on in the court at that time. That I think you know they're. they're saying publicly they're looking to overturn stuff like that. I think other women in the court who, um, and I, I don't, I was never pressured. I was certainly, I was, I never felt as though I were being pressured to, I, but some, I mean there's some really serious cases of sexual abuse and assault that are going on in the court, and I was never part of that. I think what, what I experienced was sort of this this, I would say, an insular silliness. And, and that I think was that was how I think about the feedback that I received because it just didn't really make any sense but 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 I the way I think about my experience there I think first of all there are some amazing people who are part of the court and I won't name them because I'm sure I'll forget someone but the the way that I look at my experience in the court is that I learned a lot I met um, some amazing people who either decided to continue with the court or didn't but it it what the court had the potential to do and perhaps can do if they get their value system straight is uh, create an educational framework for the study of wine and a community around that. And I think that was what I was so grateful for. So in the end, while that moment, that particular moment of not passing service, and then not really having legitimate feedback as to why felt like a gut punch. And it, and in retrospect, I just feel bad for the court that they think that they have to like, you know, like, what are they trying to protect? Like, it shouldn't be harder to become a master sommelier than it is to become a brain surgeon. And in no other industry, is there this sort of silliness that's
0: associated with with the court right now? Um, Absolutely. And it, it's, it. it has really deprecated a lot of what they do well it's a, it is it's difficult but.
1: yes but but i i think i think in retrospect it was such a gift because if i had passed then i would not have had the i would not have taken the initiative to create ramona. So I think it was this this moment of change on so many fronts. It was uh, passing the service exam and having already passed the blind tasting but then not passing service at a moment where I was on the floor at Co every night. The Bobby Stuckey who's a wonderful human who's sort of the the de facto head of service at the court had come into Co and said, "I have uh, I'm telling everyone I know about what you're doing on this program. Nobody is doing anything that's more important than what you are in wine at this moment right now. And then feeling like I nailed that exam and then getting the silly feedback from people who don't even work in restaurants, who I certainly, those were not people that I looked up to as inspirations for service in any way. I mean, not to belittle their accomplishments, but it was sort of like, um, wait a minute, do I really want to hang my, do I want to hang my identity on that kind of feedback? Or do I want to look at this as a giant gift and say, okay, I'm actually, I, I, in retrospect, I was sort of spared the um, the the difficulty that a lot of friends ended up going through when they decided to pull their name out of the court and leave it entirely because it was uh, such a stain on an otherwise wonderful record and resume. So I think the court is going through its own identity crisis, and I hope that they uh, can figure some things out. But it, it had I had I not failed that portion of service, I don't know that I would have had the confidence to to change my, to shift my direction and focus on creating Ramona.
0: Well, and you were validated by people who really meant something to you. And I think that's so important in everyone's life and and everyone's path. And, you know, Ramona was born and it's become a huge success over the past sort of six or seven years with, you know, celebrities seen drinking it. And you got the cover of Wine Enthusiast with as one of their 40 under 40 holding your Ammonic hands. Um, great, great cover. But, you know, we know that the workplace is always saying it's equal, you know, equal opportunity. The court says that too. And, and we know nobody's really quite all the way here you know, there yet, but uh, it's good to see people trying. And so you're, you're a mother of two little boys, you've said, and you've achieved so much. It's that old saying, if you want something done, ask a busy person. I'm I'm a mother of four girls and they're all grown up and they're in their twenties. What advice would you give to a young female entrepreneur? you know not just about wine what do you want your boys to know about you as they grow up into young men you know what would you tell a young woman who was looking to start a business now
1: okay i think so much of it is finding the right partner who's going to be supportive of you and i was so lucky to find that in my husband robert and it was one of the things that drew me to him early on because i think so many times yeah there there will always be challenges in any relationship but having a partner who truly who truly is a partner in all ways is, is, is so important. I would say, Oh goodness. I would say the thing about, I guess, another thing that was such a surprise to me, I remember being very terrified when I learned I was pregnant because, because I think so much of the cultural narrative that I had heard or believed and interpreted up to that point was that you, you have a baby and then your life is over in the workplace and you have to, it's this very binary choice and you must pick one. And abandon the other, and I think one of the gifts of entrepreneurship is that you don't have to choose one; you can choose both. And I think the thing that I found for me is that that it, it crystallized priorities. It, it, as in parenthood, crystallized priorities, um, and and both for me are so important. I think mean, they're both such important parts of of my life and of my sources of joy and of my. What I, what I hope to um, I think my responsibility to raise children who are conscientious and who are respectful and who see who, who believe that that everything is possible for for men and for women and for you know, for, for, for anyone that, that it's not um, I, I, th- I think one of the gifts that I had growing up was being born into a family with two other sisters. so it was my mom and my dad and then my my two sisters and me. so we were three girls. And my dad had always, it it had never occurred to me that that I needed protection or that I needed looking out for, that the workplace was going to be hard. It was always, you know, you show up and you show up to work and work ethic was important. Education was always important. And these were foundational things that I think have been so helpful in adulthood, because if you, if you grow up with the message that if you work hard, you can, you can really create the life that you want, I believe that that's true. And I think um, I'm, I'm just grateful that I didn't have parents who, you know, who, who gave me other messaging.
0: Yeah, I think I think that is really a good point. Understanding that you can achieve whatever you want if you're willing to work hard enough for it—that's a really positive thing. Um, yeah, give your parents a hug when you see them next because that was a great—that was a great thing they did for you. You—you've also said something that I really love. The quote is that there is no I in Ramona. I think that's great. You've got a serious commitment to a more sustainable planet, and you're a certified women's business enterprise and you're supporting initiatives like Speed Rack, which is an all-female competition that raises money for breast cancer research. What's going on in your sort of proactive community building in your outreach? What's your aspirations for for 2022 now that we're sort of coming out of this pandemic, please?
1: Yes, it's such a good question. I think um, one thing that has been just become such a um, clear focal point, I think education is something that we, uh, what I'm realizing is that as we talk more about Velcro and people just don't know that it's in things that they're consuming. Um, So I, I think the more we can do to tell the story of what's in things and why we want people to feel empowered to have that information. I think that's that's a major focus for us. And then I think there are, there are always. I mean, of course, nobody could have predicted the pandemic. And I think one of the great gifts of that was that uh, collective awareness on Black Lives Matter. Or I, I think there are so many things to be upset about, and so many things to work hard towards. That I want to be open minded, and and of course, you know, be able to support organizations that, that are doing great work as, as we encounter them. But in this exact moment, I think the best thing that we can do is really double down on sustainability and, and what that means and help uh, tell the story louder so that people are empowered to make choices that uh, that align with products that they want and a value system that, that they already have without accidentally subverting it through through other choices.
0: Yeah. Educating people to ask questions and, and be aware. I think I think you've hit the nail on the head with that. Well, before I let you go today, I've got to ask you my famous final question, especially since I know how much you love Italian wine and Italy. What would be your Italian wine drink of choice? You're not allowed to say, Ramona. If you were going to sit down of an evening and, and open a bottle with Robert, what, what Italian wine would you drink? Oh my
1: goodness. There are so many delicious ones. I would say it's so hard to pick one I would say
0: I know I love asking people this question because I hate when I get asked it myself.
1: <laughs> yeah, you know what it would be? It would actually be a vermouth.
0: Oh, interesting.
1: Yes, and it's one that um, the Vietti's. So Elena Corrado Vietti. I
0: love the Vietis. Yes,
1: yes, and Luca Corrado Vietti. So. Um, called Elena Vermouth. I had it for the first time in January. So we're in
0: Piemonte for anybody who wants to find that.
1: Yes, we're in Piemonte and the base uh, of Vermouth is always wine and this happens to be a rather grape juice. So this is organic, farmed grapes from one of their barolo vineyards and it's so beautiful and so refreshing and delightful and soulful and joyful all in one and so i think that that for me was such a wonderful surprise to learn that they have been cultivating this that it's something that's actually been part of their family for a long time but they've never actually made it or or released it into the world and now they're they're starting to do that in a small way um and i just i love them so much and i feel like you can really so much of of a personality of a winemaker can be translated into um, into the wine that they make, and so I would I would say if I had to pick one, it would probably
0: be that. And they're they're beautiful labels, those beautiful lithographs of flora and fauna, so lovely. So, well, I was not expecting you to say vermouth, but upon reflection, of course, it fits with your spritz ethos. It's it's a uh, grape juice based and blended so that was a perfect wrap up for this conversation thank you so much for coming on jordan it was a delight to talk to you thank you so much as well uh, for this conversation you take care and have a great day thanks for listening to this episode of italian Wine podcast brought to you by Vinitoli academy home of the gold standard of italian wine education Do you want to be the next ambassador? Apply online at international.com for courses in London, Austria, and Hong Kong, the 27th to the 29th of July. Remember to subscribe and like Italian Wine Podcast and catch us on SoundCloud, Spotify, and wherever you get your pods. You can also find our entire back catalog of episodes at italianwinepodcast.com.